0: Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau, the podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights
1: with your host Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today our guest is Valentina Abona, sixth generation family member and export and marketing manager at Marchese de Barolo. Valentina, welcome to the show.
2: Hello to everyone.
1: I was wondering if you could give a brief background about yourself and your family and overall Marquese de Barolo.
2: Well, uh, first of all, I'm really excited to be here. The story behind my family's winery is really long and it's always beautiful to share it. It was started uh, because of, uh, of a love story, actually. So it's a very romantic one. A love story between uh, the last Marquis of Barolo and a French noblewoman who met at Napoleon's court back in the first half of the 1800s. They got married in 1806. And after moving to Barolo, into the Marquis estate, immediately this woman, Juliette, that was her name, realized that beautiful grapes were growing spontaneously in the area, yet no proper wine was made out of this grape. Even uh, Thomas Jefferson, when he visited Piemont back a century before, in the 1700s, was enthusiastic about the juice made of this grape, which had, however, nothing to do with the wines that we know today, because it was a uh, sweeter as a Madeira, sparkling, as a Champagne, yet austere, as a Bordeaux. So this means that all these wines were known already and had a very specific identity, while the wine made in Piemont didn't, it didn't even have a name. It was just wine from the Biolo grape. And it was thanks to Juliette Colbert, this French woman that arrived here in this beautiful land and uh, immediately realized that we could show our terroir through the local grapes that were growing in the region and was able to make a wine that still today is known as the King of Wine and the Wine of Kings and carries the name of the town where she lived and where my family lives today and where the winery is, most importantly. So uh, she had the first cellar built in the 1800s underground where temperature was more stable so that fermentation could be completed and carried out until the end. So to have a still... In dry wine, finally, still austere, as we know Nebbiolo is today, that, however, reflects more the terroir of our region and is consistent in style.
1: So in terms of yourself, obviously, you grew up in a wine producing family. I'm curious on, was it just deemed when you were young that you were going to be working with the family winery? Or is that something that you had a say in in terms of eventually you're like, no, this is my passion. This is what I grew up doing and I, and I want to do going forward.
2: Well, honestly, it was a surprise also for me. I mean, I did grow up here. My family bought the state from uh, the Marquises actually to a charity organization to which the Marquises left the state back in 1929. So it was... Somehow mandatory for the ones in my family to continue what my great-grandfather, together with the brother and the two sisters did, because they did invest a lot in this uh, new activity. We were already winemakers back at the time in the second half of the 1800s. And, of course, many sacrifices were done. So to continue the story and the history of the Marquises of Barolo. But when it came to me, I wasn't so convinced about this. I have to be honest. I was uh, living in this beautiful and uh, very tiny village, Barolo. We are only 700 people. And I, I wanted to discover what there was beyond our little town. So I actually, I was lucky enough to have parents that allowed me to travel, to explore, And as I love to say, to hit my head on the wall a number of times. So to realize that that was not the way I had to go through. And finally, after one year in China working in a consulting company, I came back home because I realized that I was really missing not just Barolo, but the wine itself, the wine industry. When I was in China, my mom joined me for, actually I joined her because she came in Asia for a business trip and I joined her on this trip and I felt somehow home even in countries that I never visited before. And this was only thanks to the wine. Every time I put my nose in a glass of Barolo, I feel like it belongs to me and I belong to it. So I I realized that I was definitely doing something wrong with my life. So I went back home and I started helping out my parents. And
0: so do you speak Chinese?
2: No, no. (laughs) I mean, I know a few sentences because when I was living there, I was, of course, I had to know at least how to move around the city, how to get a taxi, how to manage the few things that I had to do, like a little shopping for food or so. But the most of my business was carried out in English. So I kind of deal with that. (laughs) It was easier. My brother started Mandarin.
0: Wow. Cool. Robert actually speaks much better Mandarin than I do, even though I'm the one who's ethnically Chinese. But the Marchese de Barolo is a historic winery. It's started in the 1800s. And Barolo is a wine that is known throughout the world and has traveled throughout the world. Where in the 1800s did the wines of Barolo go to? Was it all locally within what's now considered Italy? Or is it much broader?
2: Well, it had already no uh, country borders. Well, when Barolo was born, Italy was not even a country yet. It was right. split into a number of different reigns. Barolo was under the Savoy kingdom. And it was, I'm proud to say that it was thanks to the Marquises of Barolo that the wine from Barolo started traveling. It traveled with them. In a number of royal courts around what we consider Europe. And when it arrived also, when the voice <laughs> arrived at the king's court in Turin, so in the kingdom of Savoy, the king was so curious about this wine that asked Marquise Juliette, which attended also events at the, at the royal court, to have some of the wine. He was uh, quite interested to know what was done in his. Uh, Territory because he was the king of that region. Uh, so, also of that land where this famous Barolo came from. And Marquise Juliette sent 325 barrels all the way up to the king's court, one per day, and less than 40 days of length, because she was very Catholic. So, she counted <laughs> only the drinking days for the king. But she also wanted to send a message to the king You can ask me for the wine that is made in your land because you are my king, but you also have to follow some rules that go beyond your power. And this is the uh, respect that you do to God. So in those 40 days, not even you, the king, can drink. So she provided him only with 325 barrels. But it's since that episode that Barolo is known as the king of wine and the wine for kings. So this Mm -hmm. already tells you how international Barolo was, because then it went, of course, to the other royal courts as well. And still today, we have correspondence uh, from the 1930s. So just after that, my family bought the state of Barolo going to the different embassies around the world in uh, Kabul, in uh, Java, for example. So I'm, I'm thinking at the most faraway places, but it's pretty amazing to see how it was already so with no boundaries, with, uh, so international
1: It's good that you give us that story. I've always heard that saying, but I never knew what the origin of the saying was, that it was the the wine of kings and the king of wines.
2: It's a true story.
1: You know, I didn't realize which, I just heard that in general for Barolo. I didn't realize it was for Marquise de Barolo's wines.
2: Well, then, of course, now we apply this, uh, we use the sentence to talk about Barolo in general as a denomination, as an appellation. But it was thanks to the Barolo of Marquise Juliette.
1: So in terms of Marquise de Barolo, I'm curious, back then was, or in the early days, what was differentiating those wines versus the other wines in the region? Was there something or other wines from Barolo at the time?
2: Well, they were the very first producers. So before the um, opening of the winery of the cellar of the Marquises, there was no other place where the wine was done in such a precise way i mean they had no experience no techniques uh, there were no barrels the very first barrels uh, used for making barrel of wine were the ones that marquis juliette had made in her cellar and five of them we still use them today for making our wine so we were able to preserve throughout these 200 years so five wooden barrels from the 1800s So, of course, being the first, uh, they were the ones that gave inspiration to the other families that had vineyards, yet didn't know how to make wine as they did, for example, in France. It was thanks to the expertise and the knowledge that the Marquis had uh, coming from a different area. And learning from this experience, also other families started following those indications. uh, So others, uh, including us, Abona. Uh, started to make wine in the very same town of Barolo. And um, when uh, Marchese di Barolo was left to this charity organization that managed it in a very wonderful way, also gaining uh, some international awards, for example, in Vienna, uh, they won the medal, the golden medal for wine in uh, 1873. So this charity organization did very well in uh, producing and managing the winery. And it was left to them because the marquises had no children. Then in 1929, an Italian law stated that child organizations were not allowed any longer to have profitable businesses, especially good transformation business. So they could keep the vineyards, but they had to sell the winery, so the facility where they produced wine. And uh, at that point, uh, the few families that had started in Barolo tried, you know, to make an offer for them, for the state, and our family was the one that got it. So we were already quite established in the market at that point. We won also different uh, medals for golden medals for our Barolo as a bona producer. And then we just left aside our family name to continue with the name of the Marquise, so to continue that story.
1: And just a little bit of historical context in terms of the wines, were they all coming from estate vineyards or was there, because I know there was a lot of sharecroppers at that time as well. I wasn't sure if they were buying grapes in from other people farming. I'm just curious on how that was set up and how is that today even?
2: Well, I would say that is pretty similar today. So it is difficult that the Barolo producer owns all of the land from which the wine is made from. I mean, there are a few exceptions, of course, so the smaller sizes producer do own only estate vineyards, but for the historical ones that back in the days, let's say until the second half of the 1900s, it was more common that many farmers gave grapes to the very few wine producers and the sellers, so wine sellers of the time. So there was this differentiation compared to today, farmers, producers, bottlers, and uh, Finally, commercials, so people that sold wine. This changed quite recently in the second half of the 1900s, and uh, farmers became also producers, bottlers, and commercials. So it has changed in this sense, but historically, our family, being a very historical one, always worked in this way. We don't make wine exclusively with estate vineyards. It wasn't possible at the time. It's still today. We rely on grape growers who have been we've been working with for many generations. And, you know, we buy the old fruit from them. So they grow grapes as we ask for. And uh, therefore, there is no difference between estate vineyards and purchased grapes. The overall quality is very similar, but still it's um, we do have grapes that come from farmers.
0: So we'd love to focus our conversation around how you've been so successful exporting Marquesa de Brolo wines around the world. I believe you now export to over 60 countries. Is that right?
2: That is correct.
0: And so what are the top export markets for you?
2: Well, I'm very proud to say, before going to the export markets, that our most important one is, however, Italy. So we export around 55% of uh, our overall production. So as a single country, Italy is still the one that gives us the greatest satisfaction. And I was saying that I'm very proud to say this because Italy, as we said just before, it's quite a recent country with uh, a lot of different influences that are still from the time when we were all separated kingdoms and reigns. So this uh, diversity that we find here is a little bit what you can find in the world in general, with some exceptions, of course, but it's a very demanding country with a lot of different preferences and Also, a lot of beautiful wine made in each one of the regions uh, of Italy. So to be so successful here in our home country, it's a great matter of uh, pride for our family. And uh, besides Italy, our most important country, it's the United States, followed by Germany and Norway, Denmark. So we are pretty strong in both the West and Europe. We see Asia as an emergent market for our wines. We are doing very well. For example, India has been an historical market for us. We've been exporting to India now since uh, more than 20 years. But China, Thailand, uh, Japan have come later, but with great satisfactions too.
0: So what markets are the most exciting or have the most growth for you? And is that the same for the Marchese de Brolo as Barolo in general, is what you see for Barolo in general?
2: Well, I would say did. The- as I was saying, Asia, Southeast Asia especially, are really important countries for us now that we are seeing coming after, but showing great interest, especially for the Appalachians. So mm, the quality, they're going very much into uh, discovering the different mentions, the different single vineyards that we have here in Barolo. And I would say that this is a shared trend with the overall Barolo appellation.
0: hmm Interesting. So, Southeast Asia, being like Thailand, Singapore, Hong Kong,
2: also Vietnam, for example. Yeah. Okay. All markets that were already introduced the wines from France, and now they are showing a good interest also for Italian wines and uh, the knowledge. It's quite sophisticated. The demand is very sophisticated because the knowledge about wine it's already quite high compared to the overall contest. And we are having some very nice conversation with so many there and uh, restaurants also having a very nice uh, top wine list. Uh, so it's uh, very satisfying.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. So you said the U.S. sound like Northern Europe and Southeast Asia emerging. Do Mm -hmm. these markets, these differ in how they buy? Maybe some are buying the single vineyards, as you mentioned, some are buying the Appalachian and maybe some are buying more for restaurants versus retail. I'm just curious how, you know, the markets are different, how you see the markets differently for Barolo in the different areas.
2: Historically, Germany has been, uh, for example, a country that was looking for more, let's say, um, classic wines and so not maybe discovering so much the different single vineyards it was more medium low level of requested the one that we found for those higher appellations well now i should say that probably also thanks to this moment in which we had more time to acknowledge ourselves and uh, experience about wine even though it was just virtually but i feel like more people had um, A greater understanding about what the region of Piedmont is, and greater diversity that we have in our land. Therefore, there is more request than before for like single vineyard appellations and higher quality wines. This is a general trend that we had experienced in basically all the markets we sell to, including Italy too. So the average has been shifting towards the higher end. And this includes also those countries like Germany, for example, or Belgium, Ireland, where we used to sell more, let's say, classic, uh, generous appellation, like the traditional Barodo or the traditional Barbera.
1: And I'm just curious, on, in terms of U.S. being your largest export location, how does that differ in terms of... The preferences in the market for between the U.S. And, the, and Italy, for example, are there? Is it? I mean, is Italy just cover everything, or do you find that you sell different types of wines in different locations better?
2: Well, of course, in Italy, we sell all of the wines uh, that we produce. Uh, while in any export market, is more of a a selection of wines from our portfolio that are showed. But in general, in the United States, I see a very nice uh, balance with. Uh, Italy, even though it's uh, less uh, SK users, so less uh, wines in different denominations that that are sold, I'm seeing in general a lot of interest for the overall portfolio with a very, as I was saying, nice shift in uh, these uh, latest months. Towards the high end, but in general, there is a, a great knowledge also in in United States for great wine. Actually, there is a very geeky knowledge in United States, probably even more than Italy as a overall country. There is a very nice uh, vibe and interest for the different soil types of the different single vineyards, rather than the different altitudes of the villages of Barolo. So it's always a very stimulating conversation, the one that we had in the United States over the last few years. Well, now I'm seeing this shift in general going always higher, as I was saying.
1: So when you go to look to expand into a new market, what is your overall approach? Because I'm assuming there's a pretty substantial time investment if you're going to a totally new market.
2: Well, it depends from market to market, of course, from the sizes of it and from the average knowledge that consumers have. So far, I mean, we have been opening a few new markets also in this year of COVID time. For example, Uzbekistan (laughs) became a client. We never sold wine in Uzbekistan before. But, you know, considering the size of it and the attention that there can be for our wines there, I would say that I was really satisfied because it was really easy To start working, we found uh, actually we've been contacted by a really interested buyer who was looking for expanding the um, offer in his portfolio. So, that for example was a very easy new opening. The um, other countries, maybe more um, historical drinkers and uh, with a pretty diverse average knowledge considering the different aspects of the market, where it's more. Like the bigger the market is, the more there is differentiation also in the knowledge, of course. So then maybe there is more need for education and like background knowledge that you should share before entering the market. So, of course, that investment is much higher because you need to follow certain steps and you may have to make sure that you are preparing the ground for the introduction.
1: And is that something that you guys will fund on your own because you're interested in going there? Or is there a trade organization that you partner with? So you go as a group of producers from Piedmont to try to market the wines together?
2: Well, historically, Italy, and I'm sure that you know this already, it's more of a like standalone alone <laughs> country. So it is really difficult to, to organize ourselves. And the move is a, uh, if I say critic, um, uh, critic critical mass. Yeah, critical
1: master. Critical
2: master. <laughs> Thank you very much. So Usually, it's uh, us alone, or rather, there is uh, interest from the other side. So, a specific request. Uh, we are doing, in my opinion, greater steps uh, forward in uh, in this direction. So, our consortium or other uh, organization, local from the area, are promoting a lot the territory here doing an amazing job. Unfortunately, we were stopped in this from COVID because we did have some very good plans for future actions, which I hope will take place for real after the situation.
1: And so for like large countries like the US or, or potentially large countries like China, do you go with the strategy of one strategic partner as an importer or do you try to go with multiple importers and break it up by because there's different regional like the east coast and the west coast and the middle of America are very very different so a lot of people tend to break it up i'm um, similar is true north and south and in, in china and even hong kong and taiwan are as different things so i'm curious on what is your strategy for with a large market do you try to chop it up to get the niche importers or do you go with one large strategic partner
2: so, also in this case, it depends. For example, in Canada, in each province, we have a different partner. As you will said, the dynamics from one to the other might be completely different. Also, the logics behind the monopolies. Uh, while, for example, in the United States, we deal with one importer who has local distribution in the different states. So, in this case, the approach of the solo importer that we have in the United States, it's really um, meticulous in each state to have some local people that deal with the specifics of that market. So even though it's just one importer, the logic behind it's very customized according to where we are talking. So I find myself doing a lot of meetings with the regional people that look after the different areas. So the idea behind all of this is always to be really careful to the different needs of each different market. It's just like the different regions in Italy that I was mentioning before. Of course, we have over 100 agents which are specialized in the different provinces. So we deal with each one of them, even though it's then Marchesi di Barolo that is sell, selling overall. So the logic is always that, to be really careful to the different dynamics of each single state. Let's talk about markets. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's easier. It could be a state, it could be a province, it could be a country. In uh, When we're looking at uh, Southeast Asia, for example, each country has different uh, preferences. So we are one winery we are one family and our wines are the same all over the world but we can make maybe some uh, we can according to the preferences of each market choose maybe a different selections of wine to start with and then increase little by little the portfolio or we just pick a few which can be successful according to the specifics of that market
1: I am curious, we are seeing a lot of non-Bordeaux wines being sold on Laplace de Bordeaux, you know, things from the U.S., things from Chile, you know, a lot of things from Super Tuscany or Super Tuscan wines. What are your thoughts on that marketplace opportunity? Is that something that you guys have explored? Um, is it something you've heard about other partner or other friends in the in Coroldo that are talking about that?
2: Well, it's, um, you know, it's definitely an interesting channel, but I would say that in general, Bordeaux as a market, it's a really interesting one because of the attention that there is on high-end wines. So. Even though Barolo is a completely different style from a Bordeaux wine, it is always a great opportunity for people that now have experienced Bordeaux and maybe want to go beyond that and discover the different terroirs of the world. So not specifically through Laplace, but we are working with certain clubs in the area in which we are having great success. So it's definitely an interesting uh, niche, but interesting market because as we said, it's really orientated towards the higher end and specifically it's orientated in discovering the diversity of the terroir, which is then what makes us so proud. So we can make a number of different Barolo, a number of different barbaresco because the terroir here offers us this opportunity. And therefore, when we see people that are interested in discovering this, we are the proudest.
1: Got it. And how important are these big trade Meetings or tr- expos for developing new markets, like leave and Expo Provin. I mean, those are three of the biggest in the world. And I'm just curious on how important. I'm assuming you guys are always there, but I'm curious on like, is that a critical time for you guys? Those meetings to to be able to re to you know establish new connections or or.
2: You know, you would think that uh, being uh, so established, working in almost uh, 70 countries in the world. Uh, you know, there is no need uh, to attend fairs because we already know uh, the different situations. But reality is that situations like uh, these wine fairs that you mentioned always offer us the opportunity of exchanging opinions, of getting in touch with these different countries and all together. So we can have in one day like a, a view of what is happening worldwide, which is always very, very useful. I was really scared in this year of COVID because I, I was used to travel over 200 days a year. So I was touching with hand what happened in most of the markets in which we work. Of course, I couldn't visit all of them in just one year. But it it is what I missed the most. And fairs usually offer you this opportunity shrinking in just a few days. So I do think that they are vital for our business. We've been attending Italy since the very first edition. And uh, we we are very... it. Viniti is, however, a little bit different from ProVine or VinExpo because it's really Italy-focused. So it is a chance for us to see in a uh, few days all of our country. so to see people from the north, from the south, to see their excitement for the new uh, vintages. So besides being a good trade. A show, it is also a moment that allows the emotions and the opportunity of catching up with friends, which we've been seeing, you know, throughout the different years. So I'm really looking forward for the new events to take place again.
0: I'm sure Stevie will be very happy. Robert and I will have to make a trip there.
2: <laughs> so next meeting, hopefully, will be the If not, here in Italy, will be one of the trade shows.
0: Totally. So you mentioned earlier that India is a historic market for you. And that's one that's notoriously difficult to sell wine in. How did that relationship come about? And where is the wine sold in India?
2: Well, it is sold mainly through hotels. So we work with the most important hotels, of course. It's also a matter of cost, as there is some... Um, I mean, there are no uh, taxes on us for certain chains. But, you know, for me, it's, it has all been... That's why I fell in love with uh, what mom was doing, because it's so exciting to see what happens around the world. That there is not one situation which is similar to another one. So we are talking about... One winery and one family, but at the end, is a lot of different dynamics. So it's always really interesting. Specifically in India, again, every single region of India has its own dynamics and its own taxes. So we are looking, with our importer, to be present overall. There are certain uh, regions in which, so it is very difficult because the prices will be just would just make the wines uh, not accessible. For people, but generally speaking through the hotel chains, we are really able to do a nice job and uh, India is one of those countries which really, in my opinion, give you a true dissatisfaction because of the average knowledge of the Sumayeda who are really well trained. there is a specific school for the f and b uh, and the um, I must say, I found it to be one of the most professional partners uh, to talk to, not just the importer but also the Our final client, so the sommelier in the hotel and in the restaurant of the hotel, of course, who's always very well-knowledged about wines and full of excitement for the new discoveries.
0: Wow, that's interesting. And you mentioned that you lived in China and Shanghai. Did that help with contacts and selling into China? Having lived there, or what was your experience like with Chinese wine consumers?
2: Well, I did live also in India, (laughs) and I spent some time in uh, in UK. I spent some time in New York, so I've been seeing different markets, and uh, I started realizing how the difference in culture would impact also in the diversity into the um, approach to wine. So that's why I find it really Really interesting. For what concerns China, generally speaking, my experience there has been, um, it has been the moment of my epiphany in which I realized how much I was with missing wine and how much I was missing home. Because generally speaking, in um, my experience there was different as I didn't deal with wine on a daily basis as I did uh, in the UK or in the US or even in India, the places where. I was going, always had some even local wines that were served while in in China, this wasn't really accessible at the time that I was there. So it was the first place where I really missed the industry. And that's why I probably I felt a little bit uncomfortable, even though it is the place where I sp- spent uh, most of my time. I was there for over one year. But uh, to come to, the, to your question, spending time there uh, allowed me to understand uh, the dynamics behind a uh, consumer's choice uh, and eventual purchase. Uh, but it didn't really give me the opportunity of uh, entering the tissue of the consumer as I did in other countries. So I did that only when I was working in China. So when I went back for work, that I was uh, dealing with a specific category of uh, of clients.
0: And so based on your knowledge of China, what is the Chinese approach to Barolo?
2: Well, they had developed a lot over the years. I was there in 2011. I would say that now, 10 years after, there is a completely different uh, approach But, of course, for a selected category of people, for people that maybe have traveled and are interested in going uh, beyond what China offers. Even though today China makes great wines, the um, access that people have to that wine is still very limited. So it's just a few situations. So I discovered wine clubs, which when I was living there, working in consultancy, I never approached before. So I must say that in these wine clubs, there is a very great uh, knowledge in the wine, so wine um, it's really fascinating. So people are asking a lot of questions about where it comes from, why shows like this. At the beginning, perhaps a wine from this region is not so understood because it's Uh, fruit is the last note that you find. I mean, you really have to dig and look for it. It's not the first one that that comes out, maybe in a Barbera or in a Dolcetto, but the most known appellations, the most appealing for Chinese markets, such as Barola and Barbaresco, are a little bit more difficult in this sense because you don't find that sweetness that usually Asian and Chinese palates really look for at the beginning. So it's really a matter of a, educating and uh, and training but i had met some of the most uh, important uh, wine lovers in in china while discovering these plots
1: so i'm curious with you being in so many different export markets how do you maintain relationships over time i mean obviously you can't visit 60 plus markets in every single year so what like how do you keep in touch obviously this last year and a half has been a little different but typically how do you keep relationships strong
2: well of course technology helps a lot i mean this is a This is obvious, but beyond that, I think that visiting and establishing relationships in first person, it's the key to then maintain them over years. So, as I said, I've always been traveling a lot because we truly believe as a family in the personal contact. And this is probably why we were able to survive <laughs> this uh, past uh, year and a half with uh, no travels, because we have, besides few markets like Uzbekistan, for example, a very long-term relationship with our importers. So it was easier to speak over the phone or through video because there is already that uh, familiarity and that uh, neutral knowledge one of the other which allow us to be really practical and uh, to not speak only about business but to uh, leave space also to some uh, uh sentiment especially during these very hard times there is a real connection when i wasn't traveling maybe people were coming here to visit the winery all at the, at the wine fairs. So there are just a few importers which we met only through uh, the wine fairs, maybe some uh, more faraway markets or smaller markets. But in general, even the most remote ones, we always try to visit in uh, in first person.
1: So when you do visit a partner, what are some of the tactics or tools that you can use as a producer to help those importers actually sell the wine and create awareness for the wine and be a good partner? Like what are the, some of the things that you have th- found that have worked the best?
2: Well, for sure, when we are talking about wine, I think that we should always have a glass of it in our hands because at that point you really create a, a good connection because we are sharing something that is uh, alive, that changes together with uh, with us during the tasting and uh, that is, however, linked to a single territory, which is, in this case, Barolo or the region of Alba when we speak about Barbera. So. According to where the wine, to where the grapes were born, I'm always uh, taking a little bit of my home out with me. So we're talking about something that is physically uh, there, that that I know and I want to share with someone. Allowing them, you know, to imagine Barolo, to dream about it. And uh, we have to make this as concrete as possible. So um, usually when we travel and we speak about the different uh, terroirs, for example, the different soils of Barolo, I try to take samples with me. Maps are always really useful because people can locate immediately what uh, you are pointing at. And here I'm becoming a little bit geeky, but I think that this is the beauty of it. when you start looking at maps, then uh, to me, the real excitement starts. But in general, even in these uh, months of COVID, so when we were not allowed to travel, videos and pictures were really, really helpful to allow people to imagine themselves here and create more connection.
1: And so since we've all gone through the pandemic, people have had to pivot to not doing in-person or trade shows and and do a lot more digital. I'm curious on, you know, I've been in that space as well, and I haven't seen as many Italian producers, you know, really jumping in and participating in sort of the public things, but obviously there's a lot of private zooms. I'm curious on going forward, what are you going to keep? Like, what do you, what worked well for you? over the last year and a half and what are you going to keep going forward so that it can make you more efficient and get you more touch points with your consumers around the world
2: well of course uh, learning how to use these tools which we had a disposal before of the pandemic but we didn't really uh, take advantage of can be um, an opportunity to that we can maintain in the future so for example i think that for business meetings as a really focused meetings it is nice to do it over a video call because you're looking at each other but you also have all of your data in front of you you're in your office so if anything is needed is right there as well as some uh, maybe virtual tasting where you can be in the vineyards and show the real vineyard together with you but at the end I think that it will it should be if I can uh, choose my preferred uh, world issue a combination of the two things uh, in, um, in in this year. Of course, we had all suffered a lot for being home and uh, maybe not having our regular life. But on the other side, I think that we, in my case, we've been really lucky that we were all healthy and we had the opportunity of rediscovering some values that being together brought out again, which we had forgotten for a little bit too long. So I really hope that it can be a combination of the two things Uh, Still using, you know, virtual tools, but also being together with people. As I rediscovered some uh, pleasures of being with my family, I'm sure that it will be that I won't give for granted when I meet some uh, customers, some clients or some importer all over the world. As before, that was a routine. Now I think I will live it in a different way. But, you know, going back to your point, I think that we should really share the wine that we have with us. I've been... uh, trying you know, to do some virtual tastings with no wine. I had wine, but maybe the public, the crowd didn't. I personally don't think that that can last longer because as I said, you need to live the emotion of having the wine evolving with you while you're deepening the conversation and you're becoming more knowledgeable. Then you need to find something real in the glass to allow you to live that emotion completely.
0: That's a good point. That mixture of the sensory nature of wine with with the education and everything else. So you have almost seventy markets. Do you need to allocate your wines across those markets? You know, do somewhat more than you can provide and or maybe it's the opposite or there's there's certain skews or whatnot. or how do you think about how you sell wines to each of the mark, different markets?
2: Well, I think that there are always you know opportunities for maybe, this year, as you mentioned before, educational is, is a key point, And we had good opportunities of doing that because we will have more time at home. I had more time to study on the different markets, even more than what I did before. So I did have a chance to speak with uh, some of our importers and maybe revisit a little bit the mix of their portfolio. And for this reason, we have to locate uh, some of the wines that we make, especially when we talk about the single vineyards or the Barolo del Comune di Barolo, which is, however, a limited production because it comes from only vineyards within the town of Barolo. So, of course, the area is limited. Therefore, is limited the wine that we can make from those vineyards. So we are working more in this direction, trying to schedule and uh, program more because we are a little bit afraid of running out of certain wines.
1: So I am curious on your thoughts on being a woman in the wine industry. Obviously, Marquise de Brolo has a, a long history of being a pioneer in this space, being originally started by a French noblewoman. You mentioned your mother and how you're basically following in her footsteps in terms of how she was using and exporting I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about being a woman in the wine industry. Marques de Brolo is obviously kind of a pioneer in this space, being founded by a French noblewoman. And then you mentioned following in your mother's footstep in terms of doing, expanding the markets for your family winery. Could you give some advice to someone who's maybe a young woman who wants to get into the wine industry? Like, what are some of the things that you've learned or your family's learned that have made you so successful?
2: Well, being a woman myself and having such a long uh, history with women in the wine industry, I'm asked this question a few times, but honestly, what I can, the advice that I can give is to always be yourself and to not be scared of that. You know, sometimes uh, we are a little bit afraid that being women, we won't be successful because it's still such a a male-driven business. I I don't think that that is the right way to approach this. We are all different, women and men, but also between women and between men. We are all different one from the other. So I think that we should really be aware of who we are and what we can give to the specific industry, which is a lot. Women have a lot of, they're very sensitive compared to that they're more sensitive, generally speaking. Compared, but then again, as I said, there are many differences between one and the other. But in general, I think that this sensibility can be really useful in this industry. But, you know, in general, I would advise to be less judgy than what I was. When, and here I'm really speaking truthful. When I was little, I always blamed my mom for not being home with me. And with my brother, he's uh, six years younger than me. So I had to be like a second mom to him. And that definitely was not my role. (laughs) he uh, He didn't like it. I didn't like it. So I have been blaming my mom for this for a little while. But then when I had that epiphany, when I was in China, I realized all of the sacrifices that she did for allowing us to be here today, all of the efforts and attention that, she together with my dad put into what they're doing. So to grow also the name of Marchese di Barolo as much as they did and, uh I can't be more grateful. And I feel also very bad for how judged I was before. So if this can be my advice is to always consider that beyond you know, the smiling faces and the, the love that we can have for what we're doing, there are always some sacrifices that have to be made in, in both sizes, from both sides, both mom and dad. But what she did, I'm sure that all of the sacrifices also that Marquis Juliet did. So to allow this, She couldn't have children, but she allowed her baby, the winery, to become so successful for all of the energy and the attention that she put in this. And even though she was a woman, and this was the first half of the 1800s, she's been extremely successful and recognized in the success that she had. So I think that women can do great, as they always did in this business, as in others. So just don't be afraid of being who you are, basically.
0: I'm gonna to have to use that for my sister. I think, <laughs> make sure she listens to this episode, because I don't think she actually listens to our podcast. But unlike my mom, who has only given us four stars, for <laughs> our podcast but so
2: that is what moms do so now i feel so bad for how i felt before i was also you know in that age when i was a teenager that of course with my mother was a constant fight so i had to find something that was wrong but reality is that there was nothing wrong now i'm doing exactly even maybe putting more efforts and more time because we have a this at our disposal today i mean we are receiving during the day during the night so there's no more like private moments as maybe we had with her in the past but i realized that this is just the the way it is so i'd rather take it with the enthusiasm than she had
0: <laughs> that's awesome so what does the future have in store for the marchese de brollo
2: who knows no i'm just joking is <laughs> <It's>, uh <laughs> i think that it's a constant work in progress. Uh, Being a family, the beauty is that every day, especially now that we are all together, thanks to, I mean, not thanks to the situation, but in in a certain way, yes, we are constantly brainstorming about how we can improve and what we should do. So it's been a really educational moment also for me as a daughter, but also a grown-up person in the family to speak with my parents to speak with my brother who joined the business last year. And we have all different vision not visions. We have all different approaches, but just one vision. So it is beautiful how it's everything in constant transformation. I mean, the path is very clear, but I'm excited to see the way we will get there in the future with all the enthusiasm that also David is bringing today he's looking after all of the vineyard management uh, and he's overlooking on the on the production so we have two very different uh, approaches he's uh, producing and selling so sometimes also fighting a little bit but i think that's from these uh, good fights uh, Always the best comes out. So we are looking at maybe focusing on certain appellations, which before we didn't, uh, we were not too sure to pay attention to. Well, now Davide is really convinced we have bought um, a little estate. uh, Well, for Barbaresco, is actually quite important uh, of uh, seven actors called Cascina Bruciata in uh, the heart of Barbaresco. So the dream for Davide, but also for me, I always believed a lot in this reality is to bring Cascina Bruciata to shine for the beauty of the vineyard on which it sits on. We are on Rio Sordo, which is one of the most historical crews for Barbaresco. And the will of David is to focus on this uh, appellation. And I can't just wait to be there to support him.
1: Great. I'm looking forward to trying those wines. So as we wrap up the episode, we've been asking the last couple of guests this question. What are you personally most excited about in the wine industry for 2021?
2: Well, I think that we had a good year to reflect on what we were doing. We had discovered new ways of doing business. As I said, being a family, we were also quite flexible to react to the situation and learn new ways of communicating, new ways of uh, speaking to our customers and to present ourselves. As we always had maybe uh, a very clear idea, but we were never able to do it. So uh, to reflect that idea, I think that this was the year in which we had the chance to focus on those things. And my hope for the months to come is to be able, as we said, to integrate this new knowledge with what we were doing before. So to travel again, visit the markets, shake hands and hug people. I'm a hugger. I miss that too much. So And uh, share a good good glass of wine for real with, with people looking at each other, eyes to eyes, but also implementing these new techniques and understandings that we had in this year. So to be even more professional in our business.
1: Great. Well, thank you for talking about how Barolo is exported all over the world. It was uh, very educational. We appreciate your time. And, you know, we know we took it, it took a few times for us to kind of connect, but we were so happy that we were able to make it happen.
2: So now I just wait for you here in Barolo. So to discover with your own eyes and with your own hands, the beauty of this land and the different expressions through the wines.
1: It's at the top of my list. I'll be there as soon as I can. <laughs>
2: <laughs> thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next
2: time, cheers.